Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, thanks for joining me. This is Levi Russell. Um, I want to talk tonight about distributism and what more broadly uh, that term today represents, which is uh, an economic policy uh, paradigm that is consistent with the social encyclicals of Leo XIII, Rerum Novarum, Pius XI, Quadragesimo Anno, um, and to an extent, uh, John Paul II, Centesimus Annus. There are other encyclicals and other letters, especially by Leo XIII. He has a lot of them that play into these uh, ideas uh, that, that, that give us meat around the bones of these ideas. But what I want to specifically talk about is really a, a, a rhetorical technique used by people who don't like distributist uh, ideas where they don't what they really don't like is they don't like the idea that they have to get rid of their political worldview or submit it to church teaching. They don't like the idea that they're going to have to read Rerum Novarum and listen to Leo the Thirteenth rather than simply repeat whatever the economics profession tells them. And what they end up doing is they end up basically farming out their morality uh, for a lot of different things uh, in, in the realm of financial issues, uh, in the realm of um, just general income and wealth. Uh, and, and, and so this has to do with poverty. It has to do with um, production of goods. Uh, and just there's a whole paradigm that that, that is that exists from sort of typical economic theory. And uh, the problem is that economic theory will always run into um, moral issues. It, it's not avoidable. So let me start off by talking about sort of the rhetorical strategy that you get from these people. And most recently, um, I've seen this from certain commentators i don't really want to mention names but it's it's pretty obvious if you look around at the catholic commentariat and and here's here's sort of the rhetorical trick that you get they'll say ah distributism you mean that ideology that we got from chesterton gk chesterton and hilaire belloc these two writers from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And, um, you know, th they'll say, aha, so you, you don't, you don't really understand economics. They didn't really understand economics very well. And so because, uh, they didn't understand economics very well, then I don't have to listen to the ideas of distributism. And by extension, right, and this, this is usually unstated, by extension, I don't have to listen to Rerum Mavarum. I don't have to listen to Quadragesimo Anno. I don't have to read those encyclicals uh, because everything with the word social in front of it 
uh, just is, is bad and icky. So, um, again, that, that, that last bit is unstated. They won't actually say that they don't have to listen to Leo unless they're just real hardcore libertarian types. Um, and so it's kind of an interesting thing because really, if you, if you sort of step back from it and, and this is the reason I'm talking about this is because this is something I did for a long time. And once you, once you humble yourself, uh, and I'm not saying I'm the most humble guy in the world, which would obviously be uh, an oxymoron or whatever, but <clears throat> once you, once you humble yourself and you say, it's okay for me to have been wrong about the moral components of appropriate Catholic economic policy. Then you get a different perspective. You start to say, you start to see things a little different, differently. You start to see things as I need to conform my political and economic views around the uh, magisterial teaching of the church instead of the other way around. And I think if a lot of these people be honest, that's really what they're doing. What they're really doing is they're, they're putting their political views, their predetermined political views ahead of, um, what I think is really obvious, um, church teaching. Uh, if they just spend, I don't know, an hour and a half reading some of these encyclicals and maybe reading some commentary on them. Um, so specifically on Chesterton and Billock, like I, I haven't read much, uh, Chesterton. I've read some of his, uh, you know, shorter stuff, uh, and, and with him specifically, the whole thing becomes a joke about, Oh, you just want three acres and a cow, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, look, you know, the guy was a, a literary guy, you know, he was a writer. He was talking about, you know, beauty and, and things like this. And that's not necessarily, um, the most, the, the, the clearest way to talk about economic stuff. Um, but I'm not saying I'm not going to discount it. I really don't have enough knowledge of Chesterton to really address that. Um, Belloc, on the other hand, I think is very good. If you read uh, Economics for Helen, if you read The Servile State, you get a serious impression that this guy does not like socialism. And he does not like, uh, you know, he also doesn't like, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, what we would call unrestrained capitalism or uh, capitalism that produces large businesses. Um, it, but on the other hand, I, I think Belloc doesn't go nearly far enough when it comes to things like usury and trade. Um, economics for Helen is, is a very sound economic treatment of those issues um, that I think gives a little bit too much to um, those other ideas. And, and I, I've already addressed the usury thing before. And uh, in a future episode, I'll talk about trade. Uh, we've 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 touched on it a few times here and there in the ag in the agriculture episode. Uh, check that out if you want to look at the trade issue. But but I'll talk more about that specifically later. So what happens is we get uh, this dismissal of these two guys, <clears throat> and 
and Belloc is it's really confusing because if you just read his stuff, it's 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 very good. And uh, we were lucky enough uh, on Twitter to be treated to uh, one of these Chesterton quote accounts, just absolutely spamming anti-socialist stuff from Chesterton. So, you know, it, the information is out there. Now, if your understanding of economic policy is so stunted and is so narrow that you think that anything um, anything that, that allows for uh, government restriction of property rights beyond what, say, Ronald Reagan would have approved of, um, that, that, that that is socialism, uh, then, of course, you're going to think everything Chesterton and Belloc says is socialist. But the problem is you, uh, not them. You have a distorted view of the definitions of these terms. You have a distorted view of what the church expects you to um, to treat as uh, uh, moral imperatives. So I, I think it's easiest, and, and I, I go back to this a lot, it's easiest to explain this stuff in terms of subsidiarity. I don't even have to jump into solidarity to, to talk about this stuff uh, in a way that just makes it quite obvious uh, what the problem is. So, when we talk about subsidiarity, just to catch everybody up, subsidiarity is the concept that uh, the smallest or most local political unit should handle um, issues that they are competent to handle, and that no larger or less local, farther away, more distant political unit should um, should come in and try to uh, destroy that smaller political unit's ability to handle these issues. So, um, to provide the foundation for subsidiarity, we say that the family is the basic unit of society. It's the basic political unit. Uh, everyone in the family has a role. Uh, and of course, there are, uh, you know, different exceptions and, and uh, uh, you know, ranges around these different roles. I mean, obviously, it's not, uh, it's not as if, you know, the government's going to dictate everything you do every day. Uh, but the point is that the family itself has a political role to play. Um, and those families come together and they form communities. Um, so it, the, right away, we can see that this whole idea of uh, farming your uh, morality out to standard neoclassical economics is going to get you in trouble in terms of the church's teaching on uh, political justice, political um, uh, optimal political arrangements. Uh, because economics has to treat individual people as the basic unit of society. Um, it, the, the, the most fundamental pieces of neoclassical economics, utility functions, uh, and e even to an extent, uh, profitability because, uh, you know, the whole, the whole edifice of profits, uh, profit maximization is, and cost minimization are really based on, um, the utility, uh, math utility function math. Um, and so you, you've already got a problem there if you're going to base your 
morality on these economic principles. And let's be fair. Uh, let's be serious. These people do. Sure. You know, they may, uh, they may not listen to economists when it comes to certain things like abortion and stuff like that. But those are exceptions when it comes to uh, the bigger political issues like trade policy, like immigration, uh, they very much have a neoclassical economic paradigm in their head. And that is what decides the positions they take, period. So, like I said, we've already run afoul uh, because we're not treating the family as the basic unit of society. And second of all, this whole idea of atomistic individualism, and I know uh, people recoil when you tell them that they're, uh, you know, well, you're, you just want everyone to be an atomistic individual. Well, the, the thing about that term that I think is really funny is that neoclassical economics really is an attempt to, um, to force the Newtonian paradigm from physics into economics. And so it's kind of funny when we say atomistic individual, right? Atom as in, uh, you know, the, the, the so-called basic, you know, the somewhat basic building blocks of physics, uh, atoms, uh, that we're saying, you know, an atomized individual. I, I think it's just very, uh, <laughs> it's almost ironic, uh, that that term is used. And I, th- I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think it's a great, uh, rhetorical device when you're trying to, uh, talk to people who, uh, are refusing to, um, submit their, uh, moral conscience, their moral, uh, moral political views to, uh, Leo the 13th writings and, and, and Pius the 11th writing. So the next step, I think, uh, in this little conversation that you may have with, uh, someone, uh, who, who's, who's replaced their, uh, a good chunk of their moral compass with economics, uh, is that you have to be careful um, about this whole distributism thing. Uh, again, I think there's a lot of value in that. I, I've read enough Belloc, especially, to say that I think there's a lot of good stuff there. But I think that ultimately they were writing for the arguments that they were having at their time. They were writing to talk to people who were communists and to try to convince them that this is not the way to go. They were trying to bring them back from socialism. So I, while, while I think they have a lot of good writing and I think they have a lot of good ideas, I think sometimes just reading their stuff and not um, understanding how to apply the ideas in Rerum Novarum and Quadrigesimo Anno uh, to today's issues is a mistake and, and it's a it's a big problem. So back to subsidiarity. So if we if we look at some of these tension points um, where the sort of Reaganite neoclassical uh, economics morality uh, paradigm uh, goes runs afoul uh, and, and it runs afoul of subsidiarity. Uh, some of these really contentious issues like trade, uh, international trade specifically, uh, like social media companies and, and so-called free speech. 
Um, these these issues are very serious, and um, uh, well, I am could throw immigration in there too, and and what we have to do with subsidiarity at this point is we have to realize that yes, smaller political units are preferred if they are competent to address the issue. Right. And so you, you can actually have some common ground with libertarian, I think, in the sense that, um, yeah, okay, as long as we're not talking about the individual as the basic unit of society, as long as we're talking about families, you know, I'm perfectly in agreement with you that there are a lot of uh, industries with way too much regulation with, um, you know, we, we talk about occupational licensure. We talk about um, a lot of the uh, health care laws. Uh, go back and read um, David Beto's book, From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State. It's a fantastic book. It's a little bit expensive, but it really shows you what happened in the early to mid-20th century and how um, the AMA and uh, state governments uh, completely destroyed the uh, community-based health care model. Um, you know, and, and today we have certificate of need laws. I mean, just Google these terms. Certificate of need laws uh, are, are awful. And of course, we can agree with, you know, a sensible libertarian that, you know, these are bad ideas. We, uh, we, don't, we don't like these policies. They're very anti-community. They're anti-family. 100%. But on some of these other uh, more contentious issues, uh, things like uh, I'll just start with international trade. Why is it that we would expect the federal government to set limits on trade to some extent, whether that's quotas or tariffs or two-part tariffs? Um, why would they focus on certain countries? Well, that's because there are other issues to balance here. Um, there are uh, regulatory issues at play. Uh, any of these trade, so-called free trade agreements, have m they're massive agreements, and and everybody can say, oh well, well I'm really just in favor of, uh, you know, a free trade agreement that's you know the size of a three by five note card. Well, fine, but n such a thing has never existed. I mean, you might as well say you're in favor of a unicorn. Uh, actually existing real life free trade agreements have massive implications for loss of sovereignty for a country. And so if you're happy to just simply give up all of your community, state, and national sovereignty, not all of it, but a lot of it in a lot of areas, especially with labor policy, with environmental policy, to some other government through this agreement that, you know, Congress didn't approve, the Senate didn't approve, the president just simply signs it, and that's the way it goes. If you're happy with that, then, I, then what I would suggest is that you probably have some distorted priorities or you just simply have never seen what's in these agreements. And I'm going to take an example from the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, that thankfully Trump didn't sign. Um, you know, one of the provisions in there, uh, and so I, I know from just my own professional experience that the farmers were uh, very on board with this thing. They were super excited about it. And... Uh, because really all they saw was just an opening of markets for them. But the funny thing is, 
I read a piece in a tech magazine that said that basically the Trans-Pacific Partnership would have made the Millennium Copyright Act a criminal offense. So if farmers had, you know, dug into the software on their, on their tractors, they could have been jailed for that, for messing with the software on their own property. Um, you know, this is not good stuff. Is this, is this sort of thing worth, uh, you know, potentially having a slightly larger market for some agricultural products? Uh, I kind of doubt it. I, I don't think that, uh, number one, the, the main problem is nobody knew. Nobody knew about that. Uh, and a lot of people didn't believe me when I told them. But it's real. Uh, and, and these are the, the kinds of trade-offs that we can't fit into an economic model. We can't quantify these types of things. And you know these are these are inherently qualitative issues, and they just simply cannot be shoved into an economic model. And so there's there's seriously no reason to insist and insist and insist that because someone disagrees with you on an issue like trade, or like uh, you know issues of sovereignty and things like this, that they just simply don't understand economics. I mean, this is just the silliest arguments. Uh, it's just silly. It's, it's pointless. It's worthless. It doesn't, it doesn't advance the conversation at all. So, you know, and, and I think this goes across the board to other things. You know, we look at the, the, the China issue. Um, there was an Acton Institute article the other day where they were, they were, they were shouting victory because Trump backed down on his increase in tariffs on, get this, printed Bibles from China. So the Acton Institute was, I guess, frustrated at the beginning that Trump was going to put higher tariffs on printed Bibles from China. Now, why would you, why would you think that it would be a moral thing to trade with a country uh, like China on this front? I mean, they're, they're putting, uh, they're putting you know, religious dissidents in uh, re-education camps and killing them. But yet you're going to complain that we are harming their, you know, well, I guess it could be two things, harming their economy and you have to pay an extra $2 for your Bible. Oh, you poor thing. My goodness. So, you know, the political pressure does work. It does affect how leaders behave. We've seen this with North Korea. And sure, China's a tougher nut to crack, but literally China is, is, is basically the same as Russia, uh, you know, 60 years ago. So, you know, everybody forgets this. They're like, oh, you know, China's the new economic miracle. Garbage. It's all fake. All the statistics are just, why would you believe it? You wouldn't believe, uh, you know, you wouldn't believe Stalin or Gorbachev. Why would you believe, uh, you know, Xi Jinping? Um. It's just, it's, it's nonsense. The willful ignorance in many cases on this issue is just baffling to me because people know better. People could look at the statistics. They could read the timelines. They could look at the way this so-called trade war has unfolded and understand that there are qualitative issues at, uh, at play here that simply cannot be fit into an economic model. Um, so, so there's trade. There's some good examples. 
Uh, maybe maybe I should talk about the job thing. Look, uh, yeah, okay, in standard neoclassical economics, yes. Is it the case that imports are the uh, benefits and exports are the costs? Sure, if all you're worried about is consumption. If that's all you care about, then yes, of course, imports and exports are uh, imports are benefits and exports are costs. And so it would be silly to uh, build your trade um, policy around uh, increasing exports. But see, that's the problem, is that anytime we're talking about policy, we're talking about morality. And anytime we're talking about morality and all we're allowed to talk about is what uh, you know, Milton Friedman said, and a handful of uh, you know intermediate and maybe even advanced textbooks have to say about the issue. Nonsense. You know, there are real people with jobs and with families and communities. And when these families, when these communities fall apart, the families in them fall apart. And uh, th this is not a morally acceptable thing. Uh, place matters. I mean, this is one of the greatest insights of Belloc and Chesterton is that place matters. And, you know, you can mock it all you want and make Lord of the Rings analogies or whatever. But at the end of the day, ask yourself if place matters. If you've moved around your whole life, you've uh, never worried about living close to your family and staying with them, honestly ask yourself if that's the best way to live. If that's the way Looking back at human history, that's the way people ought to live. And I don't think you're going to be able to say that that's the way people ought to live. So, you know, that is a great segue into the immigration side of things. So, to the, uh, you know, the folks who farm their morality out to an economics textbook, let's put it that way. You know, immigration is an open and shut case, right? Well... You know, people should be free to move. Well, what? You know, these these silly borders are just lines on a map. They don't mean anything. And again, this position that I used to hold. But the the biggest problem with this is not necessarily even immigration with an I. It's immigration with an E. See, the people who move from one place to another to improve their lives. In most cases, those people are some of the brightest and most motivated people where they come from. And if place matters, if location is a meaningful thing, if communities matter in and of themselves, the way and the place and, and, the, and the time they are built, if your life matters and the community you live in matters, and it's the same for people in Mexico and Myanmar and Burkina Faso and everywhere else. Those people's communities have meaning. And when you take the people who are the most intelligent, the most driven, and the most talented from those communities, and you bring them somewhere else, or if you just simply dangle a carrot in front of them and say, oh, come over here. Because again, this is not about welfare. We're not getting rid of our welfare policies. It's just never going to happen. So again, you might as well be dreaming about unicorns. It's simply saying, oh, well, we just have to get rid of the welfare state. It's not going to happen, and it wouldn't be a good thing if we did it anyway. 
So just, it, it, it's just nonsense. It's, it's a non-argument on this issue. If you really want brain drain in these other places, then I will just simply say you are not committed to the value of those communities. And I think you need to reevaluate priorities. That to me is the biggest issue with immigration is the fact that it does not respect the beauty and the sanctity of place and community again for the people leaving where they're where they're leaving and yeah things might be tough there but they're not going to get any better when all of the smartest most talented people leave that is not going to improve that country in any way shape or form okay so let's talk about tech and censorship and the first amendment Again, we go back to subsidiarity and we think about what political unit, what level of political unit would be competent to deal with the issue of tech censorship. Okay. Well, is that going to, is that going to work at the family level? Are individual families going to be able to take on Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, I don't know. What is it? Fangs, right? Uh, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Are individual families going to be able to take that on? No. How about the mayor of your town? About all the mayors in the United States? Probably not. State level? Maybe. You know, uh, if you could get someone uh, smart and wise to uh, operate maybe the city of San Francisco or the state of California, you'd have a shot. But uh, the odds of that happening are slim to none. So, okay. So we're, we're, we're having to climb the ladder here. And that's okay in subsidiarity. Because we started at the bottom. We didn't start at the top and say that everybody has to listen to the UN. That's the socialist right there. That's the global, um, I guess globalist, whatever the word is. I don't know. That's the, the socialist paradigm right there. No, it's not a top-down thing. It's the fact that these uh, social media and, and tech companies are so large that the, the smallest political unit in society to, that, that is competent to handle them just happens to be one of the biggest political units in society. So there's nothing wrong with... You know, your average Trump voter saying, look, we got to do something about these guys. Uh, you know, read up on Section 230. This is nothing but favoritism for these companies. It allows them to completely ignore the content of the speech on their platforms. The New York Times can't do that. Your local newspaper can't do that. Your local radio station can't do that. They are liable to an extent for for publishing lies. But Facebook is not, and neither is Google. Uh, they're just basically given a free pass. You know, it, it's not good. I don't like it. I don't like the fact that I'm pushed into this spot where it's either, um, you know, take my chances with a large government entity that I don't necessarily trust 
Uh, but in this case, the other side of that coin is ineffectual whining, uh, which is pretty much the only other thing you can do. Because expecting a smaller political unit to handle these issues, to handle uh, digital property rights, is just laughable. And there's just simply no way that there's just simply no way that it's going to uh, that's going to end well for um, you know anyone who disagrees with you know the majority opinion of Silicon Valley. Um, and most people, I would guess, listening to this podcast, do not agree uh, on average with <laughs> the average person in Silicon Valley. Uh, and so I don't, I don't think there's any reason for me to talk about, uh, you know, welfare policies or, or healthcare stuff. Uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm decentralist on those things. Um, but I'm, but I am certainly, uh, on board with the idea that communities have, uh, a duty and an obligation to the poor among them to take care of them. I just, yeah, I, I would just, you know. I would just say that, that, that a very, very large political unit is not going to do that very well on average. So I think with that, I think I will add, uh, I think with that, I'll just let it go. I, I, uh, so I think with that, I will, uh, end this episode. This was kind of a different episode. Uh, not a super cheery one, but, uh, but I think, uh, this stuff needs to be said and people need to, um, people need to be examining uh, their thought process on this stuff. They need to be reading Quadrigismoano. They need to be reading Rerum Novarum. They need to be reading the other social encyclicals and stop being afraid of the term social. It is the church's word. Uh, you know, the, the church came up with the concept of social justice. Yeah, it was perverted by a bunch of Jesuits. Sure. Um, but that doesn't make the term bad or the ideas behind it bad. Uh, so would love to get any contact from any of you. If you, uh, if you have questions or, uh, if you'd like to, uh, uh, suggest ideas for future episodes or, or, uh, you know, stuff for us to tackle, uh, hit us up on the YouTube channel, just search trad dads and, and leave a comment and, uh, I'll definitely read that. Uh, with that, thanks. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the trad dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.